So we're at our fourth and our final night on Isaiah for 2023. And so far, we have considered chapter 49 and the second servant song, along with the comforts that were provided to the servant and that spontaneous praise to Yahweh. We also considered the feelings of rejection from Zion and the beautiful response from Yahweh as he provides them reasons that his love would never fail and the assurances that the adopted children would be raised up by Yahweh among the Gentile nations and they would become permanently overcrowded in that day by immortal saints in the kingdom. We also considered chapter 50 in that Yahweh confirms he hasn't divorced from Zion and then we saw that third servant song and Yahweh's instruction to follow the servant. And then in our last class, we started to look at chapter 51 and we saw those three hearkens there's the hearken as he confirms his past faithfulness is a promise of future blessing. There's the hearken as he promises everlasting salvation to Jew and Gentile. The third hearken where he assures his people they should not fear their enemies. And we started by looking at that first awake, awake, where Israel pleads to Yahweh to interpose just like he did in the past. And Yahweh responds with those four beautiful assurances to his people the redeemed will return with joy and um, triumph. The eternal creator of heaven and earth is our comforter. And we've got nothing to fear from mortal man or the fury of any oppressor because Yahweh is always in control. We're not going to be left to die like captives and we'll soon be restored. In the meantime, Yahweh would continue to provide for our needs. And fourthly, Yahweh who divided the sea gave his solemn promise that he was protecting us in the shadow of his hand. And tonight we're going to finish off our considerations of Isaiah by looking at chapter 51, verse 17, through to chapter 52 and verse 12. And so as we turn to verse 17, this time we have Yahweh proclaiming, Awake, awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem. And we can't miss the obvious connection with the previous section. So there the captives are pleading with Yahweh to awake and he gives them those assurances. And now he confirms that he's active and the tables are suddenly turned and Yahweh is telling Jerusalem to awake. It's probably a good time to remember as we do through this section of prophecy that it was written to those that would be in captivity and they had that redemption they longed for out of Babylon. But the bigger and the more important picture is that this relates to our day. It's the everlasting redemption that would come when the kingdom of God is established on earth and all the faithful will be redeemed. And it really came out in the last few chapters that we looked at, that future hope. And we'll see it again tonight as we look at these verses. So another way that awake, awake can be rendered in verse 12 is arouse thee. So why is Yahweh telling Jerusalem to arouse thee? Why is he asking Jerusalem to do that? Well, we see the answer. It's because they're lying in the ground. They're in a state of faintness and intoxication because they've drunk from the hand of Yahweh, the cup of his fury. It says there in verse 17, thou hast drunk at the hand of Yahweh the cup of the fury, thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. They've drunken every last drop. You know, the contemporary English version gives us a, a more contemporary version, which is quite dramatic. In that version, it says, Jerusalem, wake up, stand up. You've drunk too much from the cup filled with Yahweh's anger. You've swallowed every drop. You can't walk straight. And the first thing that we notice in verse 17 is that they've drunk at the hand of Yahweh, which means that it's Yahweh who provided the cup of whatever it is that they've drunk. You know, there's quite a few passages that deal with this idea of the cup of wrath 
Uh, Ezekiel uses this idea in Ezekiel 23 in verse 31 to 33, and it's a, a graphic picture of Israel being punished by Yahweh with a cup of wrath due to their wickedness. And then we've got Judah following in the same evil ways as her sister. So the cup is now given to Judah. It's called a cup of astonishment and desolation. We also have references in Job 21, where Job is replying regarding the wicked. Psalm 60 and verse 3, as the psalmist considers Yahweh's actions against his people. And Psalm 75 and verse 8 regarding God's judgments. But perhaps the prophet that gives us the fullest picture around this cup and gives us the fullest understanding of this cup of wrath is Jeremiah. So let's turn over and just briefly have a look at Jeremiah chapter 25. We're not going to read the whole section. We're just going to pick up a few points starting in Jeremiah 25 and verse 15. And when we read verse 15 and 16, For thus saith Yahweh, God of Israel, unto me, so talking to Jeremiah, take the wine cup of this fury at my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So Yahweh is instructing Jeremiah to take the cup and cause the nations to drink and become intoxicated it's the cup of Yahweh's fury and it's given to all nations. And we find in verse 17 that Jeremiah does exactly what he's told to do. Then took I the cup at Yahweh's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom Yahweh had sent me. It's all the nations. But notice the first nations that are mentioned in verse 18. We've got Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and the kings and the princes to be made a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, a curse in that day. And surely that's exactly what happened when the city was destroyed and the people were taken into captivity, into Babylon. It's what is going to happen again before the Lord Jesus Christ intervenes. And then we've got all these other nations mentioned in verses 19 through to 28, extending to all kingdoms which are on the face of the earth. They're all drinking from this cup of wrath. And history attests to the fact that many of the nations that are mentioned here did drink from the cup of Yahweh's wrath, including Egypt in verse 19, the king of the Medes in verse 25. And we also know that Yahweh's wrath will be poured out on the nations in the battle of Armageddon. And notice the words in verse 29. For lo, I begin to bring evil on the city, which is called by my name. And should ye be utterly unpunished? Ye should not be unpunished. For I will call for a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, saith Yahweh of armies. The point here is that Yahweh caused Jerusalem to drink of the cup of wrath. And so he would absolutely not leave the other nations unpunished. And this plan and this purpose that Yahweh has has been worked out over thousands of years and it's still going to conclude with the judgment upon the nations. And so back in Isaiah 51 and verse 17, we've got this same idea of Yahweh providing the cup of wrath. And in this prophecy here, we see the result of them having drunk the cup of Yahweh's fury as prophesied by Jeremiah. They're stumbling around and they're intoxicated. Such is the effect of the wrath of Yahweh upon them. And Isaiah says that they've drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling. Other translations replace the word dregs with bowl, as in a cup of staggering, even the bowl of the cup of his fury. And this word trembling only appears here in Isaiah chapter 51 in verse 17 and in verse 21. And the only other place that you'll find this word is on the slide in Psalm 60 in verse 3, where it's translated astonishment. And so you get this idea of the impact that it has on the receiver. They're left astonished, 
They're stumbling around. They're reeling from the experience. They're trembling. You know, there's a, an obvious connection here with the word cup by our Lord Jesus Christ leading up to his crucifixion. In Matthew 26 and verse 39, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And also Matthew 26 and verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. So a cup of trembling. <clears throat> so here's the question that we can consider. What is our cup of trembling? When we read Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 17, naturally we're thinking about the nation's cup of trembling. We've also had our minds drawn to that cup that the Lord Jesus Christ faced, the cup of trembling. But what about us? Is this cup of trembling just something that the nation experienced and the Lord Jesus Christ experienced, or is it something that we experience as well? Well, I think that there are several things that can contribute to us having a cup of trembling. We can have a cup of trembling due to this present life, which stems from living in a world of instability and insecurity. <clears throat> but we've got those words in... Isaiah 41 and verse 10, the comfort to us, fear not, be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. We can have a cup of trembling due to the presence of temptation, which stems from living with our weaknesses and human nature. But we've got the assurance from Yahweh in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 that God is faithful who will not cause us to suffer or be tempted above what we are able. <clears throat> we can have a cup of trembling due to the dependence on other, others, which stems from our day-to-day -day challenges, such as health issues that we face that might need the attention of a physician, reliance on our employer to pay our bills, conscientious objection, moral decline... But we've got that confidence in Psalm 121, verses 7 to 8 from the NIV, that the Lord will keep us from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over you, coming and going, both now and forevermore. <clears throat> we can have a cup of trembling due to the near judgment, which stems from our fears that we're not worthy for the kingdom of God. And of course, we've got the confidence in Luke 12 and verse 32 that it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. We can have a cup of trembling due to the submission to the divine will, which stems from our natural inclination to do our will rather than the will of God. And of course, we've got those words in Proverbs 3 verses 5 to 6, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding. In all ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. And so at the end of verse 17, the nation has wrung out the cup. They've drunk it, it's dry, and they've fallen over and they're reeling from it. <clears throat> you know, this picture reminds me of what we're presented with in Ezekiel chapter 37 with the valley of the dry bones. The, nations had, the nation had experienced calamity, captivity, cutting off, and even up until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're still reeling from this cup of Yahweh's wrath and they're saying our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We're cut off from our parts. But Yahweh promises that he will breathe into them his spirit and they would return to the land of Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 51, the scene continues in verse 18. Those that should have been able to help her, they're either unable or they're unwilling to help her. Among the children born to her, there's none to guide her. Of all those children, 
The ones that have come from her, they're not there to guide her. Among the children that she raised up and educated, there's none that can take her by the hand. She can barely stand on her feet, and as she staggers around, there's no friends and there's no relations who can guide her. Even if she does manage to get up, she just falls over again because there's no friends or relations to help or to guide her. Well, actually, that's not quite right. They had Yahweh. Isaiah 30 in verse 21 says, Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way, walk ye in it. But Isaiah 48 in verse 8 says, They had shut their ears to Yahweh, so they weren't able to hear his voice. So there's no children who can help and guide her. And this was certainly true in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. There was no king, there was no priest, there was no prophet who was available to counsel or defend or protect her. And they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who warned them of the time to come. And in verse 19, we're told two things would come upon them. The margin says two things have happened. There's four words that are used here. Desolation, destruction, famine, and the sword. So is it two things or is it four things? Well, the poetry suggests that there were two sources of calamity and two things are famine and the sword, which produce desolation and destruction. So it's desolation by famine and destruction by the sword. Or to put it another way, these two things have come upon thee to complete thy desolation and destruction, even the famine and the sword. And when you think about the catalogue of judgments on the nation, you can see that time and time again they're subject to desolation and destruction. They've had famine and they've had the sword. They've experienced judgments all throughout history. Certainly in AD 70, they knew both famine as people inside the city ran out of food and sword as they destroyed the city. And notice the question that is put at the end of verse 19. By whom shall I comfort thee? You know, this suggests that Yahweh wants to give them consolation. But their natural comforters are gone. There's none to provide consolation. Well, there might be no natural comforters for Jerusalem. But cast your eye back to verse 12. He says there, Isaiah 51 and verse 12, I, even I, am he that comforteth you. So perhaps what we have here is actually a rhetorical question because the answer is the comfort comes from Yahweh. He provides comfort even when there are none others. You know, there's an interesting connection with this idea, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Both famine and sword are included in the list as an allusion back to Isaiah 51 and verse 19. And the answer is nothing! can separate us from the love of Christ. Just like we have the famine and the sword mentioned in Isaiah 51, that couldn't separate them from the love of God or his comforts. And you know the idea that only Yahweh can comfort her continues in verse 20, as we're presented with a scene of her sons. They've fainted perhaps because they lacked food caused by the famine. They lie in the head of all the streets because they've been slain by the sword. They're as a wild bull in a net because they've been humbled, just like a wild animal secured by the hunter, and they're unable to escape. They're full of the fury and the rebuke of Yahweh because they've drunk from the cup of Yahweh's wrath. So just like their mother... The sons are completely incapacitated and they're unable to provide any comfort. 
And so here we have this picture. We've got Jerusalem intoxicated by the cup of Yahweh's wrath and they're trembling. No one can guide her or lead her by the hand. No one to comfort her for her desolation and destruction. Her sons have drunken from the same cup and they're fainted and they're laying in the streets. They're like an animal caught in a net. And having painted this picture, Yahweh says in verse 21, Now hear this. Now hear this. You're drunk, but not with wine. Isaiah used the same words in Isaiah 29 and verse 9 to describe the siege of Jerusalem. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. They've drunk from the cup of the fury of Yahweh. And verse 22 paints this beautiful picture of what Yahweh says to the afflicted. He's roused them up in verse 17. He's told them to listen in verse 21. And now he tells them the message that he wants them to hear. I, Yahweh, who pleads the cause of my people, have taken these three actions. The first action I've taken is I've taken the cup out of thine hand, that cup of trembling. They would be delivered from the effect of the wrath of Yahweh. The second action that I've taken is that you'll never drink of that cup again and they'll never be subject to the similar trials and calamities. And the third action that he says he's taken is that I've taken the cup and I've put it into the hand of those that afflict thee. So the calamities which they had suffered, God would transfer to their foes. You know, this lines up perfectly with the prophecy of Jeremiah we considered earlier, with the ultimate fulfillment being when the nations are judged and the kingdom of God is established and Zion will no longer be subject to the cup of the wrath of Yahweh. And you know, John 8 and verse 36 says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. No more cup in their hand, never to drink of the cup again. The cup passed on to their foes. And you know what's really encouraging about those three actions? It's that when you look at the third column that is on the slide there, that these actions will apply to us. The first action that Yahweh will take is he is going to remove our cup of trembling. And that's why Romans 8 verse 18 says, For I reckon that the suffering of this present day is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The second action that Yahweh will take for us is that we will never again suffer the calamities of mortality. And we've got those wonderful words in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 52 to 53. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, in the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For the corruptible must put on incorruption and the mortal must put on immortality. And the third action that Yahweh will place upon us is we will never again face an enemy. And in Psalm 37 verses 7 to 9, Rest in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil, for evil doers shall be cut off. But those that wait for Yahweh, they shall inherit the earth, set free by the Son at his return. Well, the third Awake Awake commences in chapter 52 and verse 1. You know, these three awake-awakes are so beautifully connected. And I'm sure you've started to put together the pieces as we've worked through the progression of this prophecy and these three awake-awakes. The first awake-awake from chapter 51 and verse 9 asks Yahweh to put on his strength, but really the focus is actually on Yahweh's response and the assurance that he has taken action. And he will deliver them from captivity. The second awake awake from chapter 51 and verse 17 comes from Yahweh. 
It's like he's saying, okay, now I've assured you that I'll take action. You need to stand up because I'm going to take three actions by taking the cup of trembling from your hand. You'll never drink of it again, and I'm going to give it to your enemies. And in this third awake awake, we find Zion is still on the ground. They haven't stood up like Yahweh told them to do. But in this scene, they're no longer intoxicated. They're no longer stumbling around. So at least there's been some progress. The cup of trembling has been removed, but they're still lying there on the ground. And it's actually a continuation of the scene where we left them in the last verse of the previous chapter. Jerusalem is downtrodden, and they're in the dust before their enemies, and that's where we find them. Some progress, no longer intoxicated, but they're still lying in the dust. And seeing them in this state... Yahweh once again says, awake, awake. It's an urgent call to pay attention because Yahweh sees them on the ground and he's going to tell them exactly what actions they need to do to prepare themselves for the end of their captivity. In fact, we're going to see that Yahweh is going to give them five actions compared to the three actions that he has taken in the previous awake, awake. And you know, these three awake, awakes... They're just like the way that some of our prayers can work when we're asking for a specific request from Yahweh. The first awake awake is like when we pray to Yahweh and ask him to take some action. The second awake awake is like when Yahweh actually takes some action as he knows best. And the third awake awake is going to show us that to complete the request, we might need to take some action. Take, for example, a prayer for salvation. We pray for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. That's the first awake awake. Yahweh's angels are busy shaping the nations in preparation. The second awake awake. Well, we need to take some action and wait and watch and prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third awake awake. So let's have a look at the five actions that Yahweh requests here in chapter 52, verses 1 to 2. The first action, he says, is that they need to put on thy strength. The Hebrew is, clothe thyself with strength. They're told to exert yourself. Be strong, be bold, be confident, be courageous. The second action that Yahweh tells them to do is to put on thy beautiful garments Lay aside the garments that are expressive of grief and captivity and clothe yourself with garments that are appropriate for your new status and your new covenant. The third action that Yahweh tells them to take is to shake thyself from the dust. You know, sitting in the dust is an expression of mourning. It's what Job's friends did when they saw that he was in anguish in Job 2 verses 12 to 13. They put dust on their heads and they sit down with him. And here Jerusalem is told to shake off the dust because your days of grief are ended. The fourth action that Yahweh tells them to take is to arise and sit down. Or we might say it's ascend the lofty seat. Arise from the dust and sit in an elevated or an honorable place. And the fifth action that Yahweh tells them to take is to loose thyself from the bands off thy neck. Cast off the chains of captivity that are around your neck and be set free. Five actions. Five actions to prepare for their captivity to end. And here's a thought. And it's why we've included the third column in this table as well. Yahweh is telling us to awake, awake, brethren and sisters. In this age of apathy toward the hope of salvation, he is telling us to wake up. In this age of distraction, he's telling us to focus on him. In this age, when we are the captives, Yahweh is telling us to awake and to take these exact same five actions. Put on thy strength. Yahweh is the source of our strength. 
and we need to rely on him each day. Ephesians 6 and verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We need to put on our beautiful garments. And in baptism, we put on Christ like a new garment. Those that are baptized have done this. Those that are not yet baptized, it's telling you to put on a beautiful garment. Ephesians 4 and verse 24, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Yahweh is telling us to shake off the dust. We need to take courage that Yahweh can deliver us from our grief and dismay. Shake off the dust of that dismay because Yahweh is with us. Isaiah 41 verse 10, we had it on another slide. Yahweh will strengthen thee and help thee. He will uphold thee with the right hand of his righteousness. Yahweh is telling us to arise and sit down. We've been called out of the darkness to a high calling and we need to respond to this call every day. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into it in this marvellous light. Yahweh is telling us to loose ourselves from the bands from our neck. And you know, the world wants to put a noose around our neck and we need to make sure that we don't let this happen. Romans 12 and verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So let's continue to prepare ourselves for the inevitable time when we're going to be taken out of captivity. And our new home will be the new Jerusalem. And one of the features of this home is described in Isaiah 52 and verse 1. There shall no more come thee into thee, the uncircumcised and the unclean. You know, this is one of the reasons why we know that this prophecy is talking about a time when our Lord Jesus Christ returns, because there has never been a time in history when the unclean have not been allowed into Jerusalem. This time is reserved for the future. And it's a time that's described in Revelation chapter 21, and verses 25 to 27, And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honour of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. with the captives being told to arouse themselves and prepare for a time when their captivity will end, Yahweh goes on to give them four reasons for his mercy. Four reasons why their captivity would shortly come to pass. The first reason is in verse 3. Yahweh had pity on them for their self-imposed captivity. He says, you sold yourselves for naught and you will be redeemed without money. Yahweh says, you volunteered for captivity. You sold yourself. You became authors of your own bondage. The same thing applies to us when it comes to sin. Sin isn't forced upon us. We can't blame someone else when we commit a sin. We can't try to blame our circumstances or the environment around us or something else. But we know that when every person is drawn away from their, their own lust and entice. And Joel 2 and verse 8 says, Yahweh will have pity on his people because he knows our weaknesses. Yahweh says, you didn't profit from your captivity. It didn't bring you anything that can satisfy. You're sold for naught. Again, the same thing applies to living with human nature and weaknesses. They don't bring any lasting satisfaction. God created us and only he knows what can satisfy us. And because of their self-imposed captivity, Yahweh has taken pity on them. He takes no delight in seeing them in captivity. That's why Yahweh says you'll gain your freedom without, freedom without buying it. They're redeemed without money. 
since Yahweh has pity on them, selling themselves into captivity, they don't need to give anything to be set free. And this happened in Egypt, and it would happen again in Babylon. They didn't pay a ransom. They didn't pay with their lives through some war or battle. They were redeemed without money. And when it comes to our redemption, well, the price has already been paid. And a reference that you can include here next to Isaiah 52 and verse 3 is first of Peter 1, verses 18 to 19. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's the price that's been paid for our freedom because Yahweh has pity on us for our self-imposed captivity. The second reason for Yahweh's mercy is in verse 4. Yahweh had pity on them because of their history of oppression. And here Yahweh references periods in their history when they've been oppressed. In the case of Egypt, the people went there to sojourn in the days of Jacob. It was only meant to be for a little bit of time. They chose to move down to Egypt, but they were reduced to slavery and they were oppressed by Pharaoh. And Yahweh delivered them because he had pity on them. In fact, Yahweh says to Moses in Exodus 3 and verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. I've seen their oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. And in the case of the Assyrian oppression, we know a number of occasions where the Assyrians oppressed them without any cause. We've got examples such as Tiglath-Pileser and Salmaneser and, of course, We've got that record in 2nd of Kings 18 and 19 of Sennacherib when he came against Judah. And Hezekiah prays to Yahweh in 2nd of Kings 19 verse 19. And he says, Yahweh, I beseech you to save us from his hand. And Yahweh heard and had pity. And he sent his angel who killed 145,000 Assyrian soldiers and left the dead corpses scattered all throughout the city. Outside of the city. And so Yahweh had freed Judah and he had intervened. So just like in those cases and in other cases, Yahweh had pity on his people for their treatment at the hand of the oppressors. He would deliver the nation from their captivity in Babylon and that's what he did. He can also deliver the nation from the captivity that they still have today. And he will when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And just in that same way, Yahweh takes pity on his people for their history of oppression. Think about the consequences of sin that is with us each and every day. Well, Yahweh takes no delight in seeing us live with those consequences. Yahweh takes no delight in seeing his captives in a world of darkness. So he will deliver us from our captivity of sin and death through his son who has already paid the price for our redemption through his precious blood. The third reason for Yahweh's mercy is that his glory suffered by the injuries that were done to his people. The question is posed by Yahweh in verse 5. What do I get by it that my people should be taken and held in captivity without cause? Notice the two things that he mentions in verse 5. Firstly, the captives are so dispirited that they can't praise Yahweh. The people are suffering greatly and it makes them wail in grief. They're crying out because of their oppression and their bondage and their slavery. The second thing he mentions is that these captives are so insolent that they won't praise him. They're proud and they're oppressive. They reproach the name of Yahweh. They're blaspheming the name of Yahweh every single day. And for this, Yahweh is going to interpose. He's going to deliver them from the captors because he wasn't being glorified by the captives or the captors. The same thing applies to us today. 
The cries of Yahweh's faithful servants go up to him daily. Cries caused by oppression, weakness, suffering. We can't give God full praise in our state of mortality. That's going to come when we're immortal. And just the same way as those captors blaspheming, well, the world blasphemes his name and ridicules the very idea of his existence. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth, both mortal and immortal are going to give full glory to Yahweh. And the fourth reason for Yahweh's mercy is that his glory would be greatly demonstrated by their deliverance. Verse 6 says that they would know his name. You know, it's bad enough that the world doesn't know or honour God, but it's far more tragic when his own people don't know or honour him. And in that day of deliverance, he would have the glory and his people would know his name. They would know his faithfulness in fulfilling his promise. They would know his power in delivering them out of bondage. They would know his justice at punishing their enemies. They would know in that day that it was Yahweh who would speak. These are the words of promise from him who is omnipotent, unchangeable, a covenant-keeping God. And of course, they experienced this in part when their captivity in Babylon ended. But that's really just the start. The real fulfillment happens in the future. We know when the Lord Jesus Christ returns that Yahweh's glory will be greatly demonstrated by the deliverance of his people and the establishment of the kingdom on this earth. As it says in Revelation 14 verse 1, the 144,000 will have the name of Yahweh written on their foreheads and everyone will know his name. So, brethren and sisters, the first six verses in Isaiah chapter 52 have this amazing application to ourselves and to our current day. Yahweh is telling us to get ready because our captivity will soon end. Wake up, wake up. Put on your strength. Put on your beautiful garments. Shake off the dust. Arise and take an elevated position. Loose the bands from your neck. Because Yahweh has pity on us for our self-imposed captivity. He has pity on us for the oppressions that we've faced in the past and we still face today. He takes no glory in our captivity to sin and death in the world. And his son is soon going to return and bring about a time when he will deliver us from our captivity. And will eventually lead to the whole earth knowing his name and being filled with his glory. And the next section of the prophecy describes that beautiful day and how beautiful it will be. Isaiah describes it for us in verses 7 to 10. You know, Nahum probably copied these words when he says in Nahum 1 and verse 15, Beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the joyful messenger of him that announces peace. Peace that was thousands of years in the making announced at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and declared by the angels in heaven. Peace and good tidings of peace. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10 and verse 15, good tidings through the preaching of the gospel of peace. Good tidings to those who have heard and believed and developed their faith. Good tidings of the release from captivity and for the redemption of the salvation of our, the Lord Jesus Christ will bring. This good and this joyful message when Zion will be a place of worship, when the new king is enthroned and with Yahweh as the victorious warrior who establishes his rule from Zion, where the followers shout with the joy, your God reigns. And the watchmen are seeing the scene unfold. They're involved. They've been watching and waiting patiently for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're lifting their voices together and they're singing partly to give notice to the people of the things and the good tidings 
partly by way of an exaltation as they sing forth the praise of God for his mercy and his deliverance, partly because they can see eye to eye, they're united and clearly they've witnessed the events unfold with their very eyes as Zion is restored under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the peoples flow to it. And with the presence of the king and the saints and the nation restored, verse 9 says that Zion will break forth into joy and sing together. A multitude of voices giving praise to Yahweh, singing in joy, comforted with the Lord's divine presence and the light of his countenance and the comforts of his spirit. The law of Yahweh going forth from Zion. The kingdom of God overflowing with those seeking to worship him. The saints comforted. The nation redeemed. The holy arm of Yahweh made bare in the eyes of the nation. The arm of Yahweh that the people have pleaded to see back in chapter 51 and verse 9. The arm of righteousness and justice inflicting righteous judgment. The arm of the warrior engaged in a holy and a just cause. The arm of the Saviour and, and he who has redeemed his people and his captive saints and keeps and preserves them. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Lord. Well, we've come full circle to the mission of the servant in the second song that we started with in Isaiah 49 and verse 6. The mission fulfilled Salvation to all ends of the earth, the permanent end to captivity. That's the hope we have, brethren and sisters. That's our hope for the future, and it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful. And this prophecy paints a picture to give us this vision a vision of the time when our captivity will end. And Psalm 126, verses 1 to 2, describes it as being like a dream with our mouth full of laughter and our tongue with singing. And with this vision in our minds, motivating us into action, Yahweh tells us in verses 11 and 12 that we need to make some final preparations so that we can depart from captivity. And verse 11 emphasises separation. The word depart ye, depart ye, can also be rendered as separate ye, separate ye. And it gives this sense of departing or, or remaining separate from the world. And our preparation includes touching no unclean thing because the world is full of unclean things. And it also includes being clean and not giving into the temptation that the world has and offers us. The Apostle Paul cites... Isaiah 52 and verse 11, in the same sense in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17, where he says, Come out of the world and be separate and touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. The Apostle John also references Isaiah 52 and verse 11. In this case, it's the voice of heaven saying, Come out of Babylon. Don't partake of the sins of the world that you receive not her plagues which are coming. Revelation 18, verse 4. And the Apostle Paul again cites from Isaiah 52 and verse 11 in 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, talking about ourselves being a vessel unto honour. We need to carry these vessels and ensure that they're meet for our master's use and they're prepared for every good work. And when that time comes... Brethren and sisters, a time that's going to arrive very, very soon. We're not going to be driven out or compelled to flee like the children of Israel did when they left Egypt. We won't go out in haste or by flight, as it says in verse 12. We're going to go out openly, boldly, quietly, safely, without fear from our enemies. Because Yahweh is going to take us and lead us. Yahweh will gather us up. As the phrase, be your reward, is better translated. Yahweh will gather us up. He's going to collect us and gather us together. 
The Lord will be our captain and he's going to lead us and we're going to follow. Totally safe under the leadership of our Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who died for our sins and is the subject of the fourth servant song that starts in Isaiah 52 and verse 13 that will be dealt with next year, God willing. Well, brethren and sisters, what an epic, epic prophecy that we've considered just from verse chapters 49 to 52. And we've looked at them over these four nights. We've entered into the mind of the servant and considered his characteristics and his mission and his challenges that he would face in those second and those third servant songs. We've seen Yahweh's attitude towards his servants as he loves and he protects them and he gives them comforts, both his son and to us, if we obey the instructions of the servant. We've seen Zion's feelings of rejections and her cry to Yahweh to save her from captivity, as well as her utter amazement at this innumerable family of adopted children. We've seen the reasons why Yahweh has not rejected Zion and his promises and his assurances to end Zion's captivity and ours permanently when he will remove our cup of trembling. We've heard three times we've hearkened unto Yahweh as he confirms his faithfulness and the promise of everlasting salvation and eternal relief from our enemies. We've been called upon to awake, awake, as Yahweh gives us assurances of his current care and our future salvation and instructs us to get ready and prepare because Zion will soon be established as this beautiful center of worship across the whole earth. That's what we've seen in these few chapters in Isaiah. What a wonderful and an amazing prophecy. Just that small part in Isaiah. And may it be, brethren and sisters, as we live in captivity that we take to heart the lessons and the assurances and the promises and the visions of this prophecy. Because we know for an absolute fact that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And when that kingdom is established, these words are going to ring out throughout the whole of the earth, across the globe. Thy God reigneth.